Livability is what I'm interested in talking about, you know, theoretically, proximity of bodies in space, what constitutes the nature of the private. I believe those questions and conversations are ongoing. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City, conversations on how we live where we live. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with Neil Denari, an architect interested in the tension between uh, innovation and preservation, between technology and tradition. Neil joins us today to discuss his uh, work in Los Angeles. Neil, welcome. Hi, Charles. Thank you for having me on today. So as we've discussed, I know that both in your, your teaching and in your research and in your practice, you've been interested in the form, the shape of the city of Los Angeles for some time. And in that regard, I know that you've most recently been interested in the the tension or the relationship between the notion of discrete building types or individual buildings and their renovation and how the city changes and the limits of that vis-a-vis the identity of the city and the role of preservation or conservation. What kind of a role does do those topics, preservation and conservation, have in a city like Los Angeles? You know, Los Angeles has you know, historically stood for the future. Right? For so many of us, it's been the, the edge of the empire, the edge of the world. It's also been a place where people, you know, went to express their own futures, to actualize themselves and realize themselves most fully. And yet the physical, the spatial image, the morphology of the city of Los Angeles seems relatively fixed, at least in my mind's eye. There's a certain image of the single family house and the boulevards with density and now transit. And so what does it mean for you to think about preservation or conservation in a city like, uh, like Los Angeles? Yeah, the city was built on the ambition of the new and at the edge and the eternal frontier. And when I came here over 30 years ago, that was uh, what brought me, you know, to the city. And in many respects, it's also a city whose future has never come and also a future that it consumed some time ago. It's debatable when it finally eclipsed its let's say, stated future in the 20th century. And as you're right, when you look out across the horizon, the city apparently, you know, is the same. It's the world's, you know, most notable horizontal sprawl city, as we know. I take that with some, you know, kind of hyperbolic sense because there are other cities that that can contest that. But I call Los Angeles the great unsolved urban mystery, a kind of project that, you know, is telling a story that just hasn't quite been consumed or been told, you know, completely. So I think me and others who are here continue to be here because we find it to be mysterious. But I think you're hinting at what's changed about the notion of the automatic sense that everything new will happen here or everything will emanate from here, whether it's visual production, entertainment, knowledge production, et cetera, novel architecture and so forth. So I think that sense of ownership of that has been foreclosed upon, I think, a little bit as the rise of the digital, the rise of and the age of access, the dispersal of place. Los Angeles now becomes a, an important but still just one more point in a system. In other words, it's had to submit itself to the project of the global in a way that It still was more like a regional idea of a world city, you know, one of a kind. 
things have changed and they've changed because not only of current and recent issues and agendas, but let's say uh, a slower arc of shifts and change, the city getting more dense uh, population-wise, infrastructure, of course, not growing at the same level, and liberation like the freeway, you know, turning the corner from sovereignty and dominion over the land to the very thing that would ironically prevent that. So I'm here because it's super mysterious, and I believe you're studying Los Angeles for the same reasons, and Miami and Detroit have their, their sense of the incomplete as well. It's interesting that those three cities that we're looking at in this Future of the American City platform, uh, Miami, Los Angeles, Detroit, disproportionately automobile-based, you could say this, also disproportionately shaped by the individual, you know, the single-family house, right? The single-family home, the individual house on a lot. That's something in the DNA of these cities. You know, when Rainer Banham you know, arrived in Los Angeles in the 1960s and began to describe the city of the non-plan, he found a kind of temporary description of the city in which the single family house was a basic unit of a kind of decentralized political authority. You know, that, that Angelinos were distrustful of the concentration of kind of authority vis-a-vis -vis planning. And I wonder to what extent that account still holds. I mean, you're describing the shift toward transit, increased sense of the, you know, the relevant uh, value of highways and automobility. Uh, to what extent is the single family house still the basic integer of Angelino life in your estimation? I think it still represents, you know, the aspiration for, let's say, for people and families who were, let's say, part of the fabric, born and raised here. The city, of course, is host to, you know, immigrants from far and near. I'm, I'm originally from Texas. And so the idea that you wouldn't come to Los Angeles and essentially give up that aspiration, which of course is connected to just what the DNA of the city offers you, even though there are many, many roadblocks you know, to getting there in terms of land value, economic structures, and so forth. 25% of households in LA County can afford you know, a house, 75% can't, and then there's the issue of the 75% and availability of rental units. That's a probably a set of numbers that you've uncovered in your other conversations about income inequality and so forth. But I think the psyche of the city, and I have had this conversation with Francis Anderton, that especially when you start a family, regardless of what your, your background is, that's the moment, especially when uh, the idea of sovereignty of ownership and land as a, let's say as a necessity that pulls along, but in different forms, the ideals of the 50s. Since we choose to live here and it's not New York where the nature of apartment life or Hong Kong says, you know, you can raise a family just fine. That seems to be still out of the mindset. I'm edging up to a critical position, but I'm just kind of stating it more sort of factually right now. You know, in that depiction of... Um the homestead, the single family house, the, the kind of the echo, uh, the kind of shadow of the 50s and 60s. It strikes me that in that non-plan that Benham described, the lack of top-down planning or spatial authority or the disaggregation, the decentralization of those kinds of decisions between water boards and, you know, state commissions and local homeowner groups. There's something distinctly, you know, American about that. It's something distinct about the American city. 
But in that, my sense has been that this opened a space in which a number of architects could, on a variety of building types, including the single family house, begin to experiment. And I wonder to what extent that image of, you know, the experimentation on individual buildings was, you know, something that attracted you to Los Angeles over 30 uh, years ago. And to what extent that's still a project that's ongoing. I know that you, like many architects, you know, you know, began work experimenting with renovations, additions, you know, tinkering with existing building fabric, and in a space where that was not only possible, but it, in some ways encouraged. Is that is that too strong? I think the I think the role of the house, the single family house, both in terms of what it means for the city, there's a dual valence there. You know, more of them means means continuing low density. The other valence is, you know, what is it as an architectural project, which can become obviously detached from the problems of urbanism and take on a set of experiments which are limited, you know, to our specialized discipline in a way. Yet the history of the single family house in LA and modernism didn't cleave those two things apart. So the way in which the building interacted with the landscape, the way in which economy of means, let's say interacted with the landscape like Schindler or Neutra, economy of means as in the Eames, that's when the single family house wasn't under fire, wasn't in the crosshairs of the problematics of issues of density, that it was really, you know, building the city, you know, one at a time. Looking back, then we can see you know, the identity of those houses, but we tend to look at the more, to me, as not things to emulate or replicate as a paradigm or as a solution to something. I personally, you know, I, I would love to do more houses. I don't do many of them, and my project is moving more or less in a, in a different direction. And I have to say, to be quite honest, if I were to work on a house project, it would be asking questions of material and space and the phenomena of uh, life, hand in glove fashion for a specific family. I wouldn't be thinking about how this was like Unger saying, saying there's a city in every building, uh, there's a house in every city, those kinds of correlations. I think it's become a little bit unhinged and detached. I'm not sure the house has to contain the moralism of the entire city. It's, it's easy to condemn it as a low density project. So it's a bit of an ambivalent response. I believe in it as a thing that still creates identity for the, for the city. I would say that there's less research going on now in terms of house production and more a sense of whether conscious or unconscious about trying to burnish an idea of what LA is about in terms of its environment or in terms of its history. I think a lot of architects are interested in and willing to steward the mid-century modern project unconsciously as a uh, preservation and you know, idea, a little bit like when the Getty had its uh, you know, appraisal of Pacific Standard Time and modernism. I was a little worried that all of that was turning LA's identity of the future into a little bit of a mausoleum, like there was no, you know, it was a cul-de-sac, where were you going to go with this except repeat what was, you know, successful, shall we say. I have some ambivalence about that. I'm interested, Neil, in your surfacing of this intersection of forces. So on the one hand, disproportionately the single family house and its low density, putting in 30-year mortgages and leaseholds, uh, building in, you know, mortgage tax credits, uh, uh, underwriting subsidies for automobility and the carbon economy that supports that. So all of that heading in the wrong direction from where we are today, vis-a-vis climate and, and equity. And at the same moment, 
the homeowners association and the council structure of Los Angeles politics and the notion of the disaggregation of authority about the built environment down to these lower levels produces often a condition where, uh, at least in the conversations we've been having, there can be great resistance to change, particularly with respect to you know increasing density. I know in your practice and research, you've been increasingly interested in looking at two sides of that. On the one hand, infill along the boulevards, but also increasingly looking within the block structure itself as to how to increase density. Tell us about the work that you're doing in those areas and the kinds of both challenges that you see there, the resistance that you're meeting, but also why it's so uh, timely for you. If I can address that, but I, I want to take one step back, and that's a good segue, I think, into you know into an answer on that, and, and not to take it far afield. The most, I would say, revelatory urban experience I had was living in Tokyo. I lived in Tokyo and I'll, we'll come back to that just before the, the bubble economy, you know, burst. But mostly, and what you know is that, you know, there was a meter of space between houses in Tokyo. Not, not, there's no party wall, right? There's a sense that nothing speaks to one another and everything speaks to one another. So the house is maybe a question of scale and size, and also the identity of it. So I don't believe in houses being, the experiment of the house is about size at all, or you know you need territory to be able to carry that out. So the nature of the autonomous thing, and even if you connect it to an ADU and you start rezoning sites you know, back down to 25 feet as opposed to 40 and 50 feet, so that you can have autonomy, have ownership, but essentially, it's like what happened to Tokyo after World War II. Big sites got parceled up because, of course, on a real estate level, a smaller site yields more per square meter, and sites became smaller and smaller and smaller, whether it was uh, for developing eight-story buildings. That's how you get those kinds of sliver buildings. So I could see Los Angeles taking on finer grain parcelizations and still remaining you know, of a figure ground of discrete things. Segwaying into the question of the infill in a way, it's, it's almost like saying, can you make houses as infill or produce a di different kind of field? But it, the city has to be rezoned. It has to be regridded. And mostly we're thinking about height, but I'm actually now thinking about you know plan. And if you have a two-story house that's modest in size, less than 2,000 feet necessarily, 1,000 square feet on a, on a floor and a unit in the back, you double the density, you know, I, I want to say just on average of the number of people and that you can put in the same footprint. Moving to the idea of or infill in Los Angeles, that's one of the things that was, um, you know, dawned on me when I came here is that this isn't all a series of parking lots that actually over time, though the city is low, there's not a lot of fallow footprint. Yeah, the car dominates, but when you look at the built fabric, from the boulevards to the single family fields, they're full, they're not very tall. And so it turns out that all the projects I'm doing now, there's not a single one, including renovation of houses on the beach in Malibu that don't have a zoning envelope right on them. I don't have any projects in the forest or the woods or the desert or anything like that. It's the way things have turned out, but I actually relish that because that feeds into my interest in terms of the city. So by definition, and we work for a lot of developers, by definition, you know the pro, where the pro forma is coming from, maximization. So the question of filling in the city then is obviously 
FAR boosts and bonuses and making the city taller. Uh, uh, we're not yet into rezoning um, projects from one type to another. We're not working on R1 zones into office building zones or something like that. So everything is pretty much still within zoning. You have to be able to do that to go forward. Everything can't be a contestable project. So I just wanted to connect this idea of the autonomous idea of the house to the nature of the city as an infill. And maybe there's an infill mentality that can be imbued into the idea of uh, low density housing. Are you optimistic, Neil, that in doubling, let's say, the density of a, of a house that's zoned R1, is that the way forward? Or incrementally doubling of density in these individual residential districts, clearly a laudable goal. Is it enough in your estimation? Is it moving fast enough in that direction? I don't think it's moving fast enough. And I also think that, you know, the idea of uh, there's just a lack of housing, number one, and then Number one A is there's a lack of affordable housing and even market rate housing becomes not affordable for, let's say, college graduates who, you know, who have a reasonable job. You can't get five people in a studio apartment. You can get one or two, but you can't cut your costs at that you know, dramatic level. So the idea that if NIMBYism on the one hand is kind of held at bay and buildings can get taller and a general liberal sense of the city, you know, growing that producing more units will deflate rental prices because of, let's say, the market, you know, for them, we still will have a shortfall, obviously, relative to the nature of affordability and um, inequality. But at least the way forward is to scratch one's head, look at the conditions and the conventions of a pro forma and actually just try to have a conversation with your client. It's a delicate one, of course, that essentially while you're being of service to them, I believe architects also carry out a kind of hearts and minds campaign, you know, at every level, whether it's, well, maybe not this one, but the next one, or, you know, if we invest a little bit more in sustainable technology on this one, you know, let's look at a lot. I'm actually trying to get to the table and have some of those same kinds of, let's say, financially related conversations, even though I wasn't hired to do that. I feel compelled to do that as a researcher, as a thinker, as an architect, as opposed to just simply person providing service. So it's a fuzzy way to say I'm not sure that you know things are moving as fast enough, but I believe we, when I say we, the, the folks that you've talked to, I think are all trying to find every possible avenue to advance, even if it's just a hearts and minds campaign. This notion, described it as a hearts and minds campaign, reminds me of the, the classical definition of, the, of a professional, right? Which has an ethical, societal, you know, obligations beyond servicing any one particular client. I'm interested, Neil, in your, your thoughts on this topic. So one of the things we've encountered uh, in our conversations, uh, particularly with, with architects, but also with other others concerned with the built environment, is... As the boulevards, you know, as infill becomes increasingly available, the density of the boulevards increase, there is a kind of concern of a kind of, um, a kind of repetitiveness, that there's something about a certain kind of building, it's a certain kind of five, six-story, multifamily residential, a kind of building that is um, so easily replicated that it's been described to us not so much as a new vernacular, but more as a kind of... Excel spreadsheet taking up a volume on a block. Are, are we concerned about this in your work? Uh, absolutely, because that's one of the territories that I can attack. 
and still have it work within, you know, the economic principles of the project. And when, um, when I did my project in New York on the High Line, that was the moment where I just said, every building I do in the city, I'm going to go ahead and call it a public building, if only at the level of interface, if not at the level of definition of program, because it is, you know, it takes up its place. Um, it makes, it makes an argument. It, it changes. It's got its halo effect of what it, you know, influences and changes and so forth. So on the one hand, you know, if I think about cities like New York, where post-war, you know, brick buildings, whether they were white brick or red brick, you know, they took up their space, First Avenue, white brick apartment buildings, different than, you know, the pretty straightforward, you know, Stuyvesant Town cruciform towers. There they are, brick punched windows. You know, there's something really great about just the normal matter of, let's say, building the city as a, as a, as a set of increments. I think the project that you're talking about, though, on an aesthetic level and probably on a series of choices, doesn't rise to that level of beautiful anonymity enough. I mean, just to be straightforward and very critical about it. Construction here, like in North America, you know, it doesn't have the same embedded qualities as it does with buildings in Europe, for instance. So we build uh, wood frame on top of concrete podiums as the primary, you know, device to, you know, get the numbers in. After that, for me, my project then becomes a lot about defamiliarizing those forces, which essentially push to make a project have, I think, artificial qualities to it that are problematic. Number one, the buildings I just referred to in places like New York didn't try to be in and of themselves a frenetic, diverse thing. They're, you know, kind of monolithic. And actually trying to produce artificial levels of diversity within one building. In other words, urban planners want buildings to break down, become not relentless and so forth. I actually try to get my projects to have an identity from one end to the other that's actually consistent rather than artificially pixelated as though it was trying to dissipate itself back in, into the landscape. So by being simpler, I'm already being reactionary. I'm already being you know, devious in a way. And then I work with that level of discipline. Yes, if I can find a systematic way to introduce a cantilever, if I can find a systematic way to emboss a window differently, and especially if I can produce a typology of unit organizations. And I think in a few housing projects, I've kind of twisted, I've created a hybrid between a center core and a double loaded building, kind of a weird set of DNAs that produce in the end a building that does more with less and absolutely wants to leverage a critique against that kind of plug and play building that that's not the best kind of anonymous infill, I think, to be straightforward about it. You mentioned your project in uh, Chelsea, we're now seven, eight, nine years ago now, HL23, 12-story building, condominium tower, small lot. I want to say it's 40 by 100, something like this. It's a good indication. It's a good example, I think, of this notion of the, I'm not sure if you use the term splinter uh, or kind of small footprint, you know, kind of modestly vertical. Um, you mentioned examples in, in Tokyo. I've also seen interesting, you know, typological innovation like this in Latin American cities where what had been a kind of hacienda or a kind of a state house then gets converted into something that is divided amongst the family. And you see these kind of splinter towers, these kind of interesting shards 
in that sense, you've spoken about the typological innovation and, and kind of trying to find, um, you haven't used the word efficiency, but trying to find some other gain. And one of the attributes I see in that line of work, uh, generally, I wonder if you'd find this an apt uh, kind of description, which is a shift away from pure quantity of space toward a sense more of a quality of space. In, in our work in the office of urbanization, we've, we've done a little bit of work on residential buildings in Manhattan since 9-11. And we've tracked the trends that you've been familiar with, which are basically a shift away from simply square foot area in terms of real estate development and a concern um, more for viewshed, more for light, the bundling of air rights as instruments toward that. And I wonder to what extent you've seen those kind of tendencies elsewhere. First of all, is that a reasonable reading of what's going on in Manhattan these days? And second of all, is there any linkage between that and your interest in shifting relationships between core and periphery and how you might unlock value or change the math problem? Mm -hmm. I can speak to that more anecdotally uh, with projects that I'm working on in Vancouver. Now, we're still on the West Coast. Vancouver is, you know, understood to be a different sort of city than Los Angeles. But, you know, once you once you get out of the downtown core, it too is a horizontal sprawl city, you know, on the water. But we're working on some tower projects that are full of micro units, you know, 320 square feet, everything built in a tower with, with completely built in interiors and obviously less parking. Primarily targeted, obviously, for recent college graduates, young people, even in the rental market. So it will be the first tall buildings full of micro units in that city. And I don't think New York, I mean, N Architects, I believe, did one prefabricated project. I'm not sure if they're micro units. But so just addressing the idea of what does it mean to have less space and other kinds of, you know, amenities. But every one of those apartments obviously has uh, balconies, nothing without a balcony, and also with the idea that amenity spaces, you know, loaded within the building, of course, are ways to find relief. And essentially, you know, for me, the model is Japan, where you get a little small, you know, you pay a lot of money for a small amount of space if you choose to live in the city, and then you have to use the city as the amenity zone. So the restaurant, the bar is your kitchen, as it were, and the uh, 7-Eleven is your convenience world and so forth. Livability of really what you're, you know, asking questions about is what I'm interested in talking about, you know, theoretically, proximity of bodies in space. What is a view? Uh, what constitutes the nature of the private? If, is the private better with an operable system in front of a piece of glass or should you go ahead and just make the wall? and you know, permanently produce division that brings us back to transparency, modernism, Henri Lefebvre, and ideas of politics, of community, and so forth. I believe those questions and conversations are ongoing now, and they will become material at some point because as long as the numbers you know, work for people, more units is fine because we'll see a market that will not just simply tolerate it, but want that. It strikes me that your work has been quite ahead of the curve in absolutely defending sameness, but elevating a sense of urbanity. 
and distinguishing that from the kind of decorative, the kind of you know faux storefront, you know, like that that we see so so often. First of all, there's a scale of spectacle. When Los Angeles decides to do architecture as spectacle, when it wants to put on theater, it does it in a big way, right? So, and, and there are many many examples we could cite. But there, in my experience in LA, and I wonder, Neil, if this has been your your sense of it. When Los Angeles does street spectacle or where it does theater in the urban realm, it does it both at a a scale and a robustness, but also with a kind of wink, you know, like it's acknowledging it's, it's not real. And in some ways, I wonder if that doesn't take some of the heat off of the the day to day fabric, the day to day block structure. I think it does. And HL 23 taught me a lot about this idea of standing out and fitting in, you know, as a very small size party wall, yet we've got three sides and a and an exposure, you know, to a public park. So by definition, it's a hybrid project. Just, you know, color in the box and then at the same time scratch one's head and go, oh, but it might participate in, you know, on the one hand, most cynically in entertainment vis-a-vis the High Line, especially if the High Line is thought of as a as a thrill ride. I don't say that, you know, in a mean way. I talk about it in terms of urban experience. I think that that allows, let's say, what I'm interested in my work to produce difference, but obviously not through the production of the of the spectacle. The commissions don't, you know, warrant it. Yet, I sort of believe that there will be, you know, there will be some attention paid to those projects, you know, in some in some minor form. So, on the one hand, and our client commissioning me wouldn't want to say, just do the most vanilla background building and make it high quality and move on. I think they're looking for me to split differences or provide local moments of difference. But the big projects and the spectacle projects and the ones that do it with a wink end up on postcards or, you know, hosting a Hollywood event or something definitely do allow a certain spotlight, you know, to be placed on them and less on just building the city. I've really enjoyed that sort of workman-like way of going about things, but trying to obviously not divest myself of being a, a, let's say, a responsible auteur at the same time. You were born and raised in Texas. At some point, you decide to be an architect. You uh, moved to the East Coast, participating in the kind of in the in the ruins of of modernism. You know, kind of describing in this phenomenal body of of what we used to call paper architecture, incredible projects, and describing the collapse of the kind of technological faith, but also kind of interested in tools at the same time. At what point did you decide to move to Los Angeles, and what motivated that set of choices? I mean, you already had a career path. You had already been working and already established your name as an East Coast architect. What about LA drew you? Well, I guess to you know, walk through that open door in terms of autobiography, but not to make it too corny. But growing up in Texas with no water, I said one day, I'm going to the West Coast and I'm going to live. So I actually, you know, influenced by TV and LA projecting itself and so forth. And, you know, just a kid who at the same time was raised by parents who taught us about art and aesthetics. And so I could take high high aspects of aesthetics and you know look at sort of what any young person would enjoy about what they imagined about the utopia of, of California GSD and New York GSD of course was a destination and New York was always a let's say a way station to get to Los Angeles it turned out to be five and a half years I had to spend that amount of time in New York to work there, start my, essentially my career and my 
project as, as an architect, as a researcher and thinker in a, in a way. And I don't think I could have launched it in quite the same way if I had just gone straight to LA. I would have had to get a job, then I would work for Morphosis or Gary, and then I would become a, a child of, of that world. And I was able to go work in New York for James Stewart Polshak, who was a very liberal person, not, a, not the auteur, and you know, supported a different kind of work, which allowed me just the space to essentially have the monastic the monastic life essentially be the interface to doing, you know, doing whatever I want. In fact, one of the first paper projects I did was a project for Los Angeles, a fictitious house. So I was already plotting my move. But North American kid growing up in, you know, a landlocked world and not really a beautiful landscape at the same time. I'm a child of the media and I'm a child of the influence of that and I make no bones about it as well as ideas of aerospace industry, which my father was a part of, and which, of course, L.A. was built, you know, halfway on cinema and halfway on aerospace in terms of the sun being the commodity to allow those things to happen. It just intuitively felt like that's where, that's where I'm going to be able to thrive. And do I have it right that you apprenticed for predecessor firm to Airbus? Do I have that right? Yes, my dad worked in aerospace and he worked in a company called Aerospatial. And that was the one of the forerunners. Airbus is many, many companies, but they overtook Aerospatial, which primarily was focused on designing and producing helicopters. And there was a subsidiary location. So the U.S. Coast Guard, for instance, bought the Aerospatial Dauphin, the one with the circular uh, tail rotor. And so they had to have forms of distribution and a location. And of course, they chose Texas to do that because of its connection to aerospace. So that was the entree to go over there. I was, of course, I wasn't a, a legal worker. I got paid under the table. I don't think I'll be arrested for that. I was paid illegally and I got paid. And uh, I lived in the Cité Universitaire, the Dutch pavilion in the south of Paris. Uh, and so I had a great experience living in a great piece of modernist architecture. And what did they have you doing? What were you doing for them? Well, I had to learn French relatively quickly and get into a French that was more specific to the technical language. But I did drawings. I did elevations and airbrush elevations. I did exploded axonometrics, essentially graphic things that they would use for their brochures. I wasn't put in any other technical level, but I could draw and did those kinds of things. So it was the same skill set that I had graduating school to make exquisite, you know, ink drawings and so forth. So I enjoyed that. And that work was, I take it, pre-digital? Yes. Pre-digital, all, all manual and, you know, sat in a, in an office where everybody had a drafting board. I was uh, sitting next to, you know, engineers, you know, doing construction documents and analysis and things like that. So there was a small art department with photographers and graphic artists. So they put me in there and I did that for about a half a year. And, and uh, I mean, they couldn't fire me because my dad was an important person in the company in, in Texas. So they just had to accept whatever I could do. <laughs> <laughs> and judging by the, by the drawings that you were making at the time that I've seen, or subsequently at least, of course, you were an extraordinarily talented uh, draftsman. No, I mean, was that something that you had, you know, from, a, from an early age? I mean, that's not just architecture school. 
No, I did. I did that when I was a kid growing up and I did, you know, industrial projection drawings in junior high school and things like that. I was just interested in it and could do it well and was already feeding into the idea of being an architect. So that was, um, you know, one of the early signs of being able to understand what my talents were, I suppose. And at some point, decades later, you you had the commission to brand a Japanese airline. Did I make yes. that up? I think I, no, I, think you didn't I read make, this. You didn't make it up. Shockingly. It's the first time an architect has done a livery design for an airline. There was one architect who worked with a fashion designer to do, you familiar with a airline from the late sixties and seventies called Braniff. It was headquartered in Texas, uh, where I grew up, and Alexander Girard, who was a, mostly an interior designer, and Emilio Pucci, who was a fashion designer, they did the plane. But um, yes, I worked with a, with a branding consultant in Japan for a number of projects. I ended up doing a series of banks for Mitsubishi Bank and so forth, and they were the brokers for all of this work. And I was the designer, and I collaborated with them on branding, and we won a competition to do this airline called Peach Airlines, which was super fun. I always say it was like the one project where I didn't have to worry about it leaking, just, you know, graphic design and paint. You know, if it leaks, it's Airbus's fault. You know, it's like (laughs) guilt-free. No insurance necessary. So Neil, after your extended apprenticeships in New York, Tokyo, the West Coast called, uh, you arrive in Los Angeles, put out your shingle, set up practice, uh, Neil Denari Architects, and you're teaching almost immediately at SciArc. And in that regard, your teaching and research and your practice have informed each other, of course, over the past decades. I'm interested to hear from you the, the role that that teaching and research plays in your thinking about the shape of the city and the role of you know, speculation through research uh, more broadly when we think about the future of the American city. The interest in the city has always been there. The way in which it's been manifest in teaching has changed over 30 years of teaching here. And I think when I got here, I was thinking about Los Angeles in the true A-form terrain vague formless, nascent network idea, especially in relation to these things that I mentioned before, like aerospace and cinema, where they're massive global industries that are based here, but their economy is really, you know, inherently global in a way. So I was thinking about LA and its model nature and its kind of unformed nature. And so that led me, oddly enough, speaking about the kind of work I'm doing now, to look at buildings as prototypes, that the city is made up of 98% self-similar elements. We talked about the new version of that self-similar element now in the multifamily housing. I gave studios around things like that, except I was trying to introduce new elements. So for instance, I wrote studios for producing bridge buildings across boulevards, and this is in the late 80s. Like, let's make a prototype, and the bridge is not about the expediency of moving across the boulevard, but about the new exploitation of public right-of-way, you know, as a, as a place to make footprint and so forth. At the same time, of course, I was interested in what that could produce as a pure piece of design, because SciArc and was really about, you know, formal, a lot of formal speculation at that time with people like Wolf Bricks teaching and Morpheus's teaching and Moss and 
that generation, shall we say. And, and I wanted to kind of be a part of that. But I was trying to bring urban ideas to bear on what in maybe other studios were just purely autonomous projects, like draw them on the white page. So I just had a curiosity about the self-similar nature. You know, today, now I'm just, I'm dealing with, you know, kilometer square, uh, you know, sites and delving directly into the long history of urban speculation, urban fiction, and the impulse to do that, both historically and why we keep working on projects that seem like they just get put on the the surfeit or uh, the bonfire of more and more, you know, urban research, which can't be acted on or capitalized on. But most of what I'm doing, you know, tries to manage a quote unquote pragmatic conversation, even as we produce images, which are absolutely debatable, you know, at the same time. And I think that probably comes out in the fact that what I do as an architect is, um, well, we discussed it. It's both down to earth and also aspirational at the same time. And the teaching around the city wants to have parallel discourses, even though I never give studios which are bound by developer rules. I want something more free-spirited you know, than that. So I guess to just summarize, I've always interest, been interested in the nature of architecture, autonomy, and form-making but never detached from what it means in the city, whether it's a small thing or a giant project. I've just always forced a conversation between those two things. And I I think that's a little bit of a unique element to what I do. I don't think my colleagues per se, you know, teach that way. I think, for instance, Tom Main doesn't like talking about form, doesn't like talking about architecture, wants to talk about strategy Yet, as I always say to Tom, your students just bring form along to the conversation. So it's nevertheless there. And so I, I feel like I'm, I'm just trying to work at various scales at once, various levels of expertise at once, consciousness raising on the one hand, absolute nerdy uh, uh, skill production at the same time. Neil Denari, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Charles. been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. Our producers are Aziz Barber, Charlie Gilmore, Jeffrey S. Nesbitt, and Mercedes Peralta. Music is by Kevin Graham. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.